You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Glad you're back here. Some of you back, some of you perhaps for the first time talking about atonement here at this great season of the year for us with Palm Sunday coming next Sunday and then, of course, my opinion, the greatest Sunday of the year, Easter Sunday. And hopefully this is all as a way to help us to appreciate more of the great wonder and mystery and power of what this event is all about, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the church has all these centuries, even the writers of the scriptures themselves, have tried to come to grips, tried to understand the power of what happened there at the cross and then with the empty tomb and the ascended Lord. And so the church has many ways to look at this. And one of the things that I hope that you'll get out of this series, and this is the second of five, is that there are many different ways to look at this great mystery. That what we're dealing with here is what this famous painting tries to depict. And that is the majesty, the wonder, the power, the mystery of what happened here at the cross. And this is that famous painting by Matthias Grunwald at the Eisenheim altarpiece. And that what I'm hoping uh, that we will learn from this is that we'll be like John the Baptist, is that we are witnesses of this. We don't fully comprehend it. There's no final explanation of it. There's no one infallible dogma that interprets this great mystery because it's greater than what we can see. But there are many ways in which we can appreciate its depth and its meaning for us. And that's what I'm offering to you. What we looked at last time was this great teaching by the wonderful St. Anselm of Canterbury. And today, though, I'm going to move into a different explanation, uh, interpretation, the illumination of this wonderful event. And that is that Christ delivers us from death and from the devil. From death and the devil. That part of what Christ did on the cross was to overcome something that we cannot overcome on ourselves. That Christ's power is seen in such a paradoxical way that Christ defeated something that we, on our own, cannot defeat. And that's evil itself and death itself. None of us can defeat our own death. We were suffered. And the power of evil has been since, well, the temptation in the garden. And we have not been able to overcome this relentless, persistent, destructive nature within us. That the history of humanity, as that great philosopher, German philosopher Hegel once said, is the slaughter bench of humanity. And he's right about that. Just read history itself. And what do you read? Just one malicious, avarice, greedy, destructive, envious, horrible, violent destruction that goes on from one generation after the next. How can we overcome it? How can we overcome it? Well, the Easter faith is that this has been overcome that we've been given an answer to this, that this power that will defeat us, our own death, that this inimical force within the human heart, so manifest throughout all human history, has been overcome, and we have been given a way to resist the power of both the devil and death itself. The Scriptures are filled with this, that great passage there, in my opinion, the greatest explanation of the resurrection in all of Scripture, and that is 1 Corinthians 15. It mentions death 
as the last enemy. Now, of course, we can think of our own natural death, that many people live very long and fulfilled lives, and their dying would be just sort of a natural accepted outcome. We're all finite. From dust we've come, and from dust we'll go. We have to accept that. I think that's part of the wisdom of our, of our maturity. But there's something else about death. There's another feature to it, that it robs growth, it robs life, it robs future, it robs purpose from people. And sometimes that comes in horrible ways, as you all know. The death of children, grandchildren, is something that you just cannot reconcile. The, the, the genocides that go on, you know, Andrew mentioned Rwanda, how can you reconcile that with any kind of overall purpose in life? Well, you cannot. There's something horrible about death, though it may be natural for us all. And so Paul here says it's an enemy. It's a threat to us. It's contrary to our purpose. Christ has overcome that in the resurrection. Then there's that great passage in, by the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 where it says that the devil is the power of death. It's not just the devil will kill me. I'm 66. You know, Who knows? I might live another 20 years. Who knows? One day I'll just naturally die. That is not necessarily, I think, the work of the devil. But the destructive power of death, this poisonous aspect to it, in certain people's lives when they die so young without any fulfilled purpose, when their deaths are the result of horrible injustice and cruelty in the world, that's the work of the evil one, of the devil. In fact, the very word that the author uses, the word devil, uh, actually, the, if you know Spanish, it's a transliteration of the Greek word diabolos. As a compound word, it's an interesting word. The word bolos means to throw... And dia, the prepositional prefix, means to go across. So the devil, evil, is what goes across what is thrown. That is, something has been initiated, there's a purpose, there's a design, there's a goodness in creation, and something has thwarted it. The work of the evil one is to thwart God's good intention. And here what the author of Hebrews says is that this is the power of death. This inimical aspect of death is the result of someone, an agency, something that is trying to destroy God's good purposes in our life and the world itself. And then in Revelation, when the author, the great apostle, sees the end of all this, that there will come a time when death and the devil will experience a second death, that in his great imagery of the final end of, of all things and when a new creation is, is, a new heaven and a new earth is created, God will put an end to that death, will put the death to death, will put to death the evil one. In fact, the author has Satan bound up in chains and thrown into the eternal lake of fire. Death will reign no more. There will come a time in which death and evil will no longer be apparent. And then these two great hymns here, one you may be familiar with, the other you may not. Martin Luther's wonderful hymn, which in my humble opinion we don't sing enough, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's really filled with this kind of dramatic imagery in our lives that we are faced up with against foes with enemies, with powers of principalities that are inimical and contrary to us, that we are constantly being haunted and attacked by these horrible forces in human history itself, which he would call demons himself. But in this wonderful hymn, Luther mentions that Christ will defeat this one, but lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And that's the word of Christ, the word of the gospel. This will be overcome. And Christ is the agent by which we'll overcome death and the devil itself. And then there's this old hymn that I grew up with. Uh, Low in the grave he lay. Uh, you may not be familiar with that hymn. It's an old 
Baptist revival hymn, being the Baptist revivalist I am, I'm going to mention a couple of verses here about it. Uh, the, uh, the chorus is this, Jesus my Lord, up from the grave He arose, with a my, I have a hard time not singing this one. <laughs> you know, things get locked in your mind, and but uh, the only way you can hear it is to sing it again. A mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. A victor over the dark domain. Christ is the one who has overcome that which overcomes us and has triumph over this dark domain. All right, I'm going to look at a couple of old doctrines, old theologies about this victor over the dark domain, how Christ has overcome the final enemy, uh, how Christ has overcome the devil and death itself. And the first one I want to talk about here is Origen, a very significant ancient theologian. Uh, he did most of his work in Alexandria, though he, uh, he eventually was buried up in Tyre, Phoenicia. Uh, but he wrote many commentaries on the scripture. He wrote a lot of sort of significant theological books. Some of his viewpoints kind of became a little questionable to some authorities. But overall, it, there's been a renewal of interest in Origen's theology. And one particular view that he had was about Christ. Now, he had several views on the atonement. But the one that I want to talk about here is captured in that statement here. Satan being deceived with the idea that he could have dominion over it, that's Christ, and not seeing that he could not bear the torture in retaining it. Now, what Origen meant by that is that what happened on the cross is that the devil thought he had defeated the Son of God, that the evil one knew Christ not just to be an innocent victim on the cross, but to actually be the Son of God. And that all the machinations and maneuvering that the evil one had done had come to its great culmination in finally overcoming God. This is what the devil had been wanting to do since the very beginning of creation itself. Finally defeat God. And so Christ dies on the cross and it's the victory of the evil one. It's the victory over the evil one. But in fact though, with Christ being raised, it's the defeat of the defeater. It's the victory over the one who mistook his victory over the Son of God. He has this kind of imagery for it, and I, this is just a metaphor. Let's just see for what it is. And that is, Christ was like the bait on the end of a hook. And that God the Father, knowing how to overcome the adversary, lowers the hook with the bait into history itself. So here's the cross at Calvary. Christ is on it. The devil sees this as his chance to kill God. This is the chance finally to overcome the power of Creator itself, to, to so dissipate creation itself that we would return back to just chaos. The formlessness and void was at the instant of creation. And he saw that as his chance. And in doing that, he latched onto the bait, but was hooked. Now, once again, this is a metaphor. And then in the resurrection, Christ is pulled up by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and it overcomes the evil one. Now, what I find interesting about this is not that this was some sort of ransom between God and the devil. Some people, I think, misunderstood origin at this point, that God set this up with the devil to be killed, uh, to have Christ killed. This is not a setup. 
He, this is an entrapment, if anything, that, the, that God the Father knew how to overcome the devil, how to overcome evil itself. And the way that God the Father knew how to overcome evil itself is to play the game with it. It's to sucker the devil into being deceived and thinking that it could overcome evil. And so God the Father sets this up to defeat the devil on the devil's own terms because the devil's term is death. He's the enemy. He's the prince of darkness. This is what the devil wants to do. This is the mark of evil itself, his destruction. So God bears the destruction of evil to finally overcome evil in the resurrection. Now, a similar theory was given by this uh, great Eastern theologian named St. Gregory of Nyssa. Nyssa is in modern-day Turkey. He, uh, it's around Cappadocia, which is in the southeastern part of Turkey. I've been there. It's a fascinating place. At one time, it was sort of, you could argue, one of the intellectual centers of Christendom. And St. Gregory was one of the great theologians of this early part. And he, too, had this theory uh, that Christ delivers us from evil by suffering the effects of of evil. I'm not going to read all of this. You can read it, but I want to just spot read. In order to secure that the ransom on our behalf might be easily accepted by Satan. That is, God sets this up. Now, he uses Christ's death as a ransom. You know, as I mentioned, a number of people, even contemporaries with St. Gregory, found that rather offensive. That God the Father and the devil would agree, negotiate, come to an agreement that Christ's death was a ransom. But that's not what this is arguing. This was no negotiation between God and evil. In fact, and I'll go out on a limb in this, I'm quite aware that many people would disagree with me on this, but I think I'm right on it, and that is God never negotiates with evil. God never uses evil. Evil is antithetical to God. Evil is the, the opposite of God. In fact, the word Satan literally in Hebrew means adversary, the very nature of Satan itself, is to be adversarial to God. God doesn't use what is adversarial to work God's will, but God is powerful enough, creative enough, to overcome the destructive force of the adversary. And this is what St. Gregory is talking about. And so, with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity, this is relying upon Origen's metaphor, might be gulped down along with the bait of the flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death, and light shining in darkness. Uh, if you're in the nine o'clock service, we uh, in the in the prayer time repeat the the Apostles' Creed, and there's a portion there in the Apostles' Creed that many people don't like, but I think it's a good portion of it. I like it, though we have to interpret it, and that is, He descended into Hades, crucified, died and descended into Hades, and then three days later raised from the dead, sits at the right hand of God. Christ descended. His death wasn't just an um, absence of consciousness. It wasn't just a cessation of natural life. It was an engagement with darkness itself. I once saw a play a number of years ago uh, 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 called The Descent into Hell, and it shows Christ there from the cross going into hell and combating evil itself and death itself. That this wasn't just some sort of placid, sort of subconscious state that, de that Christ fell into when he died. He really did die. He really did take on the forces of darkness itself. He took you know, the challenge of evil, that is, try to destroy the work of God. 
to use a athletic metaphor, give me your best shot. And so when he descends into the hell, Christ confronts the powers of darkness and evil itself, but is raised from the dead. That as uh, as he swears, introduced into the house of death. Christ really did experience death. I know many people, even sincere, you know, devoted people, have a hard time thinking about Christ really dying on the cross. Some people call it the swoon theory. He kind of went into a coma or something. He went into a deep state of sort of meditation or something. But he really didn't die. But what if he didn't? What if Christ hadn't tasted the, 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 the effects, the destructive power of death? Hadn't suffered the horror of evil itself? What if he hadn't done that? They would still be reigning. Because they would still have the power to overcome us constantly. But it's because Christ suffered death, truly did die, descended in Hades, as the Apostles' Creed says, because He truly did suffer the work, the inimical work of evil itself, Christ then gives us a way to overcome it. If He hadn't died, then we would be just as exposed, as vulnerable, and weak as we've ever been. But because of the resurrection, because Christ really did suffer the works, uh, the work of death and the devil, then there is hope for the world. All right, that's St. Gregory of Nyssa. He also uses that same metaphor that Origen uses, and that is of the hook and the bait. I want to look a little at St. Augustine. If you know much about Augustine, that's not all that clear. He died in the year 430. Uh, he had a whole lot to say. He, As they say, he wrote enough to weigh down a donkey, and he really did. Um, and he has a lot of different explanations for the atonement. That is, how do we know we've actually been saved, or what are the consequences of our salvation with Christ? But he has a particular theory here, similar to Origen and St. Gregory, but he's going to use a different metaphor. Okay, here's his principle. This is from a particular sermon that he preached. He died, but he vanquished death, the death of death. That's like two negatives making a positive. He vanquished death. In himself, he put an end to what we feared. He took it upon himself and he vanquished it. As a mighty hunter, he captured and slew the lion. Where is death? Seek it in Christ, for it exists no longer, but it did exist and now it is dead. O life, O death of death. Now, uh, I didn't look long enough. I kind of didn't give myself enough time. But I think that phrase, death of death, is in some hymn. Any of you recollect what it is? I see a few heads nodding, because I remember singing it, the death of death. Anyway, Augustine has this same idea. By suffering death, Christ has the power to overcome it. By being abused by evil, by being assaulted by the destructive one, Christ had the power to overcome it. The metaphor that uh, Augustine uses in this sermon, though, is like a mousetrap. Still Christ is the bait. Christ lures evil and death into coming in to God's you know, final victory over evil and death. Christ is an enticement. Seeing God so vulnerable there on the cross or in the mousetrap, as, as uh, St. Augustine would say, Christ comes and uh, I mean, the devil comes and takes it. In doing it, the trap is set and it overcomes death and the devil itself. It's only by experiencing these horrible things can we be assured that these horrible things 
have been overcome by Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I love that painting that I showed at the beginning. You know, Grunwald's fam- very famous painting. It's, it's, it's filled with horrors. It's, it's what someone would look like if they bore the sins of the world. It's the consequences of someone who had been plummeted by evil, isn't it? I mean, the, the, it, it must not have been a good thing to look at. Even from an outsider, but from an inside point of view, we in our faith on Good Friday, when we look at Christ on the cross, we see what? We see the sins of the world. Luther had this famous statement. It's uh, been said quite a bit. Uh, and that is, do you know who the worst sinner of the world was? Who the worst adulterer, liar, murderer that ever lived? It was Christ Jesus. Now that sounds rather contrary to what we want it to be. But isn't that exactly what the cross is? That the darkness of the world, God bore. Like the bait in a mousetrap or the bait on a hook. God brought it in and said, here, give me your best punch in a sense. And I will come up with a way to overcome this. Uh, I can chase a slow rabbit here for a second. Uh, I'll get to that rabbit in a minute. I don't know how it was in the Baptist church, but going over to the Methodist church, in the Apostle Creed, we left out the descendant in the hell part. Do you know why that was? I don't know what the particular decision was. My guess would be it just doesn't make any sense to us modern people. Maybe a little too mythological or archaic or superstitious or something. Uh, but, you know, there's some biblical analogies there. I mean, Peter talks about Christ ascending into Hades. I mean, there's some, some support for that notion. But the greatest support for it is the theological implications of the claim. That, that, when, when Christ died on the cross, the battle just began. I mean, Christ suffered greatly to get to the cross. But the real metaphysical, to use a big word, metaphysical battle began there on the cross. And that's when Christ fought death and the devil itself and overcame it. And so it, the descent in Hades is obviously a metaphor, but I think it's a way to try to capture that. Yes, we have an answer we back there. An we have a winner right here. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. What's the name of the hymn again? Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Yeah, that's it. Guide me, thou great Jehovah. That's right. Yes. Can you tell me where in Scripture, what book talks about the descent into hell? It's in First Peter, I think it's chapter 3. Yep. Would you also consider, I'm so glad you said Hades when you said descent into Hades. And I think that's often a question we have. Can you touch on why you said Hades instead of hell just now in describing it? Uh, the, the word Hades probably has a closer connotation to the original meaning there, which is a reference to both a physical and then obviously an analogical meaning. The physical meaning was to the 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 smeltering, burning trash heap just outside, down in the valley of um, of Henan, just on the, uh, I better get my directions right, I want to say maybe the southwest side of old Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is surrounded on three parts by valleys, Valley of Kidron, which the um, uh, uh, 
Mount Olives is just on the other side, and then off, I think it's to the southwest, I think. But anyway, there's the Valley of Hinnon, and that's where they, they just threw the garbage out and burned it, and it was always simmering, always simmering. It's no, no, no one or nothing supposedly could live in there. So Hades was a reference to that, but it's also a reference analogically to this, this realm of just nothingness, of destruction, of burningness, of, of, uh, destructive forces. And so Hades was a symbol here, in a sense, of the consequences of the work of the evil one. Just as fire there in that trash heap would take everything to ashes, evil here would take what is God's good creation and turn it into ashes. Well, here Christ descends into that. Into Hades. Now, I've actually run across other references to the Apostles' Creed that said descended unto death. Seemed like I've heard that as well. But anyway, uh, where was that slow rabbit? Oh, uh, the slow rabbit. Uh, one of the early uh, sort of heretical theologies that the church really, really struggled with, and in my humble opinion still struggles with, was this idea of Gnosticism. You maybe read a little bit about Gnosticism. It's a mixture of some sort of traditional Christian beliefs with some other beliefs that come from other religions there in the ancient world. And one of those, this is epitomized in nearly all the Gnostic teachings, but in one of the early Gnostic teachers was a guy named Marcion, M-A-R-C-O-N, who argued that the flesh and the spirit are antithetical to one another, opposite to one another. God and the world are opposite principles. And consequently, God did not create the world. A demiurge or a lesser evil God created the world. The world is too dark for God to have created it. It's too ruined for God who is good and and wise to be able to create a world that ever could be ruined as the world is. And so Marcion and Gnosticism came up with this dualistic doctrine. Spirit, all good, eternal. Flesh, wicked and evil. And consequently, these Christian teachings that the word became flesh in Gnostic terminology had to be interpreted in a highly, highly kind of spiritualized way. That Christ really wasn't fully in the flesh though Christ was the Son of God. Christ wasn't really of the same humanity as we are. Christ appeared to be human. That's why it's called docetic appearing, docetic Gnosticism. And also these great teachings in the New Testament that Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead also had to be you know, spiritualized for the Gnostic. That is, Christ really didn't die on the cross. And there was one particular interpretation by a guy named Valentinius, a very widely published and read, influential Gnostic, who said that Christ learned the Eastern art of transforming his image into somebody else's. He was a shapeshifter in a sense. And uh, he supposedly in those lost years went to India and learned that capacity to change the, his image and to look to someone else. When he was carrying the cross there on the Via Della Rosa, if you've been there, there's a stage just over this, he drops the cross and he gets Simon of Serene to pick up the cross. At that instant, Christ changed his image into Simon and Simon into his so that who died on the cross? It looked like Jesus, but it was actually Simon. Why would anyone come up with such a you know, bizarre interpretation? Only if you had this theology that the two cannot be mixed, that God couldn't make the world, that God's not the creator of things, that God really couldn't become incarnate in the flesh, that God really couldn't suffer, or even yet, that God really couldn't die. If you have that theology, that God couldn't suffer the works of evil 
and death itself couldn't ascend down into Hades and take on the adversary face to face. If you had that kind of theology, then you would come up with those kind of doctrines. And they were very prevalent. In fact, like I said, I, I, I think Gnosticism is still very much a threat to a lot of Christianity today. We can't think of God really being human, being incarnate in the womb of Mary. We cannot really think that Christ suffered on the cross and tasted the death itself. We cannot. Well, that is the story of the church. That is the heart of the gospel. For God was in Christ reconciling the world into God's own self. In Christ, all the way from conception to death and the resurrection. And one of the ways that we account for what that does for us is with this deliverance theory that in that descent into Hades and dying on the cross, Christ overcomes evil and the devil on their own terms. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the significance of that in just a second. But before I leave these three doctrines here, any, any questions about origin, St. Gregory, St. Augustine? I kind of like these metaphors. We should just accept them as metaphors. You know, the fishhook metaphor and the mousebait metaphor. That this was an active work of God. That it looked like Jesus was just this passive agent there on the cross. Now, of course, when the early church, and we should as well, try to understand what happened to the cross, we should go back to what the great prophet Isaiah says there in chapter 53. Like a lamb led to slaughter. And he was. He was a lamb led to slaughter. But it wasn't that Jesus was just, in a sense, out of control, overwhelmed by these forces. But this was part of God's divine plan to overcome these forces. Jesus wasn't some sort of innocent victim dragged to the cross. This was the divine act. Yes? I can't. I, I don't want to distract from the, what you're talking about. And I'm almost afraid to ask this question. But if i got to ask, if God is the maker of all things, where did Satan come? I wish you hadn't asked that question. Well, this seems like they're coming up with theories on to answer the question, the old question, if God is God, then God is not good. Well, why didn't God just go like that? Uh, I think uh, it's easier to describe the work of, of the devil than to describe the origins of the devil. I think it is. Um, I've studied this a long time, and I suspect most of you have. Uh, and there are some good and also some bad answers to this. One of the bad answers that we should reject is that the devil's a rival deity to God. That there are actually two gods, one good, one bad, light, darkness. You can't fit that into the Scriptures. You cannot fit that into the great doctrines that have held us together all the way back to well, the Torah itself. That there's one God, creator of heaven and earth. There's not a rival God who had made the world. And so evil is not a rival God. But the other view, there's another view, just as bad, just should be as quickly dismissed, and that is evil's nothing. It's just a matter of perspective. That uh, it may look like evil to you, but it's not really evil to somebody else. That it's all just a matter of sort of relative judgments. Like, you know, for us, when we think about, let's say, you know, the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust itself, we would say that's human evil. But from some people's point of view, there's actually some reason for doing all that. Well, I, I think that also is a, a totally unacceptable uh, way of looking at evil itself. That's just a matter of perspective. 
there are evil people who will evil things and who are very smart and very good at it and who have intentions. And it's not just you know some randomness that goes on in their life, but it's something that they will and they decide to do. That there's something perverse within creation itself. That's not just a natural result of all of us are ignorant and we, you know, we have issues that we struggle with that sometimes make us act rather irresponsibly and irrationally, but that cool, calm, deliberate, smart, highly educated, willful people can will the destruction of God's good, beautiful creation. That's the essence of evil. Not that you may commit a sin or that I may make a mistake. That's just being a frail creature of dust. But there's this kind of pernicious principle within creation itself that wants to destroy the goodness and the beauty of it. That's the nature of evil. Where it came from, I don't know why that happens. You know, we're stuck at the very beginning, aren't we? In the, in the, in the creation account. A wonderful garden that God made everything according to a purpose and it was working according to God's plan puts Adam and Eve in there and they are basking in the praise and the beauty of that garden. And then here comes this tempter. That there is such, we know, and we have to face. Where it came from, I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, I don't think it's another God. And I don't think it's just a matter of perspective. It is. But I'm also going to say that it was not something that God willed. Now again, I know there are quite a few people that may object to what I just said. God does not will evil. Evil is the pernicious, oppositional force to God. Evil is that which wants to destroy what God has done. And to me, conceptually, it just doesn't make any sense that God would make something and also will to destroy it at the same time. If God is the essence of all goodness and beauty, if God is the, that which nothing greater can be conceived, the very you know, unsurpassably good thing, how then would God want to use hate and fear to work that which would be in principle opposite of that? How can that be? Yes. Are you suggesting then that, let's say, tragic death, premature, you know, ahead of older age or what have you, is that somehow outside the will of God? Uh, now, no, no I, I would never say that. I would never say that can be outside the will of God. But I also don't want to say that necessarily whatever is evil or destructive about it, God wills. I think God will can overcome those things, just as what we're seeing there at the cross. God's will overcame the enemy that Hebrews talks about. The agent of death itself, the devil that Paul talks about. God overcame those things. I know this is troubling, but you know the world's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it, I, that's not news, is it? Uh, there's something wrong with this. Creation has a great huge bleeding scar in it as the work of the tempter, as the work of the diabolos, of the Satan itself, of the, of the corrupting principle that goes on it. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. We know what the world is supposed to be. God created it. And after each day, what did God say? It is good. That the world is designed to be good. Then all of a sudden something comes in it and creates darkness Loneliness, despair, all these things as a result of something inwardly corrupting creation itself. 
Our Christian faith is based on the fact that we are not powerless in front of that. That God's will is strong enough to defeat that on its own terms. And that's what this great doctrine is talking about. That we have a way of overcoming the work of the evil one within creation itself. These are all good questions. Uh, I want to use this, this great painting also there at the Eisenheim altarpiece by Grunwald, and it's of the resurrection. I think I had mentioned to you in the chapel itself there in Colmar, France, right on the border with Germany, there's the central piece that I showed you earlier, the crucifixion, and then they fold out these other, there's, I forget, three or four on each side, and one of them is on the resurrection. Of course, Christ did die and died for a reason. He descended into Hades. He overcame the forces of darkness and death. How do we know that? Is that just wishful thinking? Is the church just the opening of the masses and the sign of the oppressed? How do we know that we're no longer just pawns in the work of darkness itself? How do we know that we're no longer just vulnerable to the wickedness and evil of the world? It's because of that. It's because of the resurrection. The resurrection tells us that God has the power to overcome darkness and the devil on their own terms. In descending Hades, he suffers the effects, and in doing that, he overcomes their effect. Well, I want to venture an explanation for this. How can that be? Now, put on your theological cap here. God creates the world out of nothing, out of chaos. That's what it says at the very beginning. And God said, let there be. Out of, you know, out of formless and void, God brought form and goodness to the world. God's creative act here is bringing order out of chaos, goodness out of nothing, beauty out of randomness. God does that. God has the power. God is the only one that has the power to be able to create a world. Evil and death and I think this is probably a good analogy, is like cancer. Cancer is not a disease. It's not a bacteria or a virus. It is the corruption of the living principles of cells itself. Cells become what? Random. Cancer is, in a sense, life gone perverse and eventually takes the life of the patient. And when cancer finally succeeds in taking the life of the patient, there is no longer any cancer. Cancer is an internal destructive principle within the, the cell growth itself. Evil and death, death in this sense here, is this internal cancerous principle. And ever since then, it seeks to destroy creation by taking it back to just chaos. Back to nothing. Taking away the goodness and the purpose and the beauty of creation itself. The worst things about all that, about suffering the effects of this kind of death and evil itself, is that it robs us of knowing the goodness, the beauty, and the purpose of God's creation. This is what it wants. It wants to return back to chaos itself. That's the nature of evil. One of the great 20th century theologians was named Karl Barth, who has shaped a lot of the way I think about things. And um, he has this wonderful chapter, I think it's very influential, on the nature of evil. And he uses the German word to describe this, and it has kind of a power of itself. And it's called das Niktiga. Niktiga, that means the nothing. Evil wants to bring things to nothing. Not just the absence of something. Like if we all got out of here, we'd be absent of humans in here. That's not evil. 
Evil is this return back to chaos. Ab create the, the, the elimination of goodness and beauty and purpose in life. That's what evil wants. Christ's death suffers that destructive work of evil and death. Christ suffers what it means to be taken from beauty, goodness, and purpose. Christ suffers that on our behalf. In the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, what are the last words of Jesus? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ was forsaken of his own relationship with God the Father. Forsaken of the beauty, the purpose, and the goodness of the work of God the Father. Forsaken. Why would God ever do that? Why would God want to experience the being forsaken by God? Our Trinitarian claim that the Son of God was forsaken by God the Father is the very heart, the theological heart of this doctrine. God takes in forsakenness within God's own being. God bears within God's own being as the triune God the forces of evil and darkness. And by succeeding, evil destroys itself. The power of destruction in thinking it had destroyed God took away life and hence becomes like that cancerous cell. Once it has finally taken the life of the cell away, nothing. Here's the genius of Jesus on the cross, on the resurrection. Here's the power of God that God overcame evil by letting evil win and then as a consequence, and the last thing I have, in the resurrection, Christ put to death evil and death by recreating creation into eternity. Christ was raised never to die again. In our faith, we may taste death, but we will never die. Because of the power of the resurrection. It's the resurrection power that overcomes evil. Not evil overcoming evil. Now I have just a few minutes and I want to say a little bit how that should affect our lives. Aren't you struck, just like being slapped right in the face, by all these passages that sound so counterintuitive to us throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end? And that is when you're slapped, what are you supposed to do? Turn your cheek. When you have an enemy, what are you supposed to do? You're to love your enemy. We are, and the meek, and those are the ones who are stomped on. They will have what? They will inherit the earth. The meek, not the powerful, the destructive, not the vast agents of destructive power. They're not going to inherit the earth. Doesn't this just sound ludicrous to you? I'm being sarcastic. What if you were Pontius Pilate, and somebody came up to you and said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What would you do? You would say, What a fool! Nobody believes that. We believe it, but why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. That's why we believe it. Whoever wishes to become great among you must become your servant. Being a servant is real power. The Christian power is not seeing and having mightier destructive agencies over evil itself. But Christian power is being able to absorb it and overcome it by being a servant. We are at our greatest. We fulfill our greatest calling when we serve rather than dominate. Another illustration, I didn't have enough time to write this up. I've got a couple more minutes and I'll stop. One of my favorite Proverbs, and this illustrates this beautifully, is Proverbs 15.1. And you know that one by heart? We all should know this one by heart. A soft answer turneth away wrath, 
But grievous words stir up anger. When you meet wrath with wrath, what do you usually get? Wrath double, don't you? Isn't that right? When you meet anger with anger, what do you usually get? Anger squared. Isn't that right? Wrath met by wrath just makes more wrath. But a soft answer, being a humble, long-suffering, enduring, passionate servant here, overcomes wrath. We overcome evil not with destructive power, not with being more evil than evil, but by, as Christ, being that lowly servant who in the power of the Gospel will overcome these forces of evil. So the concluding line is, real power. And this is what we as the church must offer to the world all in all possible ways that we can do it. That real power in the world is not destruction. That's not it. Not more bombs. Not more hatred. Not more wrath. Not more fear. And Andrew was right in his sermon this morning. We are living in a very hateful, fearful time. That's the work of the evil one, in my opinion. But our answer to this is suffering and the power of faith. Like John the Baptist pointing to the cross. This is our answer. And this is what this great lesson teaches us. Even though it uses imagery that may be a little you know, archaic for us. You know, some of us might think it rather crude to talk about Christ being bait on a hook. But the principle, though, is that Christ overcomes evil by suffering it and in the power of the resurrection recreates life eternal. And that's our hope. And that's our real power. Anyone else have a question? I know I'm stepping on thin ice. Uh, uh, after what I said last week, a couple of people got in touch with me and said, oh, Dr. Sanson, I want you to know I, I disagree with some of the things that you said. Well, that's okay. Uh, but take it to heart what I've tried to say. All right. Let me conclude us with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we open ourselves up to Thee knowing that it is in Thee only that we can be raised from these powers of hate and darkness and fear and death and destruction. Imbue us with this hope, Lord, that we may give an answer to the world what it means to live in Thy faith. And this I pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.